Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Pellico, a producer for Where We Live. Every year, we air around 200 episodes of programming. As we round out 2023, we're looking back on some of our favorite conversations with the voices that moved us. On Thursday, our host Catherine Shen will share her picks. And Friday, you can tune in for senior producer Tess Terrible's favorites. So many of the shows we produced had to do with history and the efforts to examine misperceptions, to lift up lesser-known angles of history, or to retell these stories. First up, we're going to listen back to our conversation with Daniel Hosang, a professor of ethnicity, race, and migration and American studies at Yale University. He's working with a team of students and scholars there to study the history of eugenics, the role the institution played in developing the pseudoscience, and more. He spoke with host Catherine Shen about the Anti-Eugenics Collective at Yale, but first started by defining the term eugenics. Different people who would advocate for eugenics might have different accounts of it. The term itself comes from a a British um, writer and researcher, academic uh, Francis Galton, in the kind of, you know, right after um, as abolition is unfolding across the world. And he has this account that there can be a science in which you can direct uh, kind of human evolution, uh, so the self-direction of human evolution, and the, and the term itself is is often associated with that sense of uh, an intentional kind of breeding, controlling the reproduction of humans. I should just say also, Galton is credited with contributing to many, many fields, statistics, meteorology, uh, forms of mapping. He's also a really, really explicit uh, white supremacist, someone who deeply uh, supported colonial authority and rule, So the early history of this field is both tied up to mainstream um, social science disciplines and these uh, very, very long histories of racial domination. Well, you mentioned the very long history. Can you also talk about how this was embedded in society? You know, how embedded was it in society? Yeah, so um, in the early 20th century is really when the eugenics movement in the United States starts to accelerate. Actually, a Harvard-trained biologist goes to meet with Galton um, and brings back a letter from him and which kind of authorizes him. And it re- really takes root in elite universities, Yale, Harvard, Stanford, uh, Caltech on the West Coast. These eugenicists are focused on a number of policy areas, restricting immigration, especially from Southern and Eastern Europe, um, proliferating laws that allow states to involuntarily sterilize people. Some 80,000 people in this country are sterilized without their consent by the state, uh, I'm sorry, 60,000 in the name of eugenics, uh, 20,000 in California alone. Um, they're pro- pro- promoting laws that ban interracial marriage, that promote segregation, um, and at really, 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 as we'll talk more about trying to advance eugenical ideas within universities through things like textbooks, 
courses, research uh, grants, journals. So to really try to establish it as a respectable kind of mainstream academic field. Well, and it's so interesting because with what sort of the list that you just you just went through, a lot of them are very yeah. familiar to us, I think, and we'll definitely be digging deeper into the afterlives, as we've said about eugenics. Right now, I do want to talk more a little bit ab- about what you've discovered in your research. So can you tell us about Connecticut's uh, 71st Governor Wilbur Cross or, yeah, and his, his place in history? And what did you find from that research? And did anything surprise you there? Yeah, and and maybe we might just um, back up a little bit to set the context. There's been, you know, lots of research. A historian at Yale, Dan Kevlis, wrote a really well-known book in 1985 in the name of eugenics. And there's a long, long body of scholarship that um, focuses on many, many, many of these figures. When I came to uh, Yale six years ago, and I was teaching a class uh, called Race, Politics, and the Law, and I had learned about some of this history in my time in California and Oregon about the connections between forced sterilizations and reproductive injustice, and I was curious about that history at Yale. And really, the only site that I found that really linked the university to this research was a student undergraduate uh, thesis that was done in the mid-2010s. Um, that really focused on how, uh, especially in the early 1920s, when eugenics is increasingly under attack as a kind of pseudoscience, does it have any credibility? Is it just dressed up bigotry? Uh, A number of key faculty at Yale, the economist Irving Fisher, the president at the time, James uh, Rowan Angel, uh, a geographer named Ellsworth Huntington, um, offered to bring the American Eugenic Society, the newly created American Eugenic Society, to New Haven. And the, and they set up the office on the New Haven Green at 185 Church Street. At that time, Wilbur Cross is the dean of um, the graduate school at Yale. He's a literary scholar. He retires in 1930, runs for governor uh, soon after. And when he's in office in the mid-1930s, he commissions this study called the Survey of Human Resources in Connecticut. And he turns to the most um, kind of uh, racist uh, uh, faction of the eugenicist movement, the Eugenics Record Office, to carry out a survey of every town in Connecticut for the purposes of dividing the population between those who are, quote, adequate and those who are inadequate. And they go town by town to create this, these groupings, it's like 16 diagnostic categories that make someone inadequate. They set up their office at the, um, at the state capitol um, and then present a report two years later. And the chilling, chilling, chilling part of this report is it not only advocates for sterilization and institutionalization, but even cites potentially euthanasia as one possible remedy to deal with a quote, inadequate people uh, of the state of Connecticut. And well, you just build up so much information, and yeah. you said chilling three times, so yeah. that makes me semi semi excited and also a little a little bit scared about the yeah. <laughs> we're getting yeah. into later. But we, I want to get into uh, Governor Cross sure. later in the show for sure. But I uh, also want to dig more into Yale's role as well, because based on your research, I think you found there's some correspondence with Hitler as well. Was that surprising for you? Oh, I mean, so, um, and these are, again, many of these documents have been, sometimes we call them, they're kind of hidden in plain sight. 
So other scholars have written about them. I think what's new about this project and many of the students who are engaged in it is thinking about the role of the university in particular and, you know, higher education in general in helping to promote these ideas. So um, in the early 1930s, someone named Leon Whitney, who was the secretary of the American Eugenic Society, he's the one handling all the correspondence coming out of their office on the New Haven Green. And he writes a book uh, called The Case for Sterilization. And it's really trying to advocate the uptake of large programs of sterilization all over the country in the name of eugenics. And he writes in his unpublished autobiography, he writes this many years later, 1970, um, that after this book comes out, um, you know, he says, Hitler's henchmen write me a letter and they say, can you send me the book? And he's thrilled to send it to them. And then they send him a letter thanking him so much. And in his autobiography, he recalls very, like, a great sense of appreciation getting these letters from Hitler. And he says, I'm going to, he says, I took my letter. And I went to see the chairman of our immigration committee for the American Eugenic Society, another Yale alumni named Madison Grant, a notorious white supremacist. And he says, look at this letter I got from Hitler uh, commending me for my book. And in his recounting, Madison Grant reaches into his desk and says, well, look at the letter I got, uh, him thanking me for my book, The Passing of the Great Race. So what was you know particularly chilling about this is he's writing this in the late 1960s. Um, so that it really, really challenges the idea that eugenics ideas, as, as horrible and painful as they are, simply withered on the vine uh, after World War II, that there were people who were continually invested in them, and that U.S. universities and higher education played a really important role in laying the groundwork for the race science that the Nazis would take up. Well, and honestly, based on what you just described, it changes my view of what book reviews are. <laughs> you know, not to make yeah, light of yeah. this, but wow, yeah. I cannot yes. imagine, you know, being in that room, hearing this conversation. Um, and so another thing we mentioned earlier, too, is the Anti-Eugenics Collective. Can you talk about yeah. why and when did Yale establish this collective and who was involved? Yeah. So this is really, I have to just say, it's it's the students. So when I, I came across this uh, undergraduate essay, I started incorporating it into some of our classes, lectures, discussions. And in, I think, 2021, a group of students came up to me and said, like, do you know more about this? Is there a way we can find out more about it? I really didn't. Um, it was still during a lot of the pandemic-related shutdowns. And they said, well, what if we spend some time in the summer looking at some of these archives? And so a, a group of five students spent that initial summer uh, doing that, taking images, trying to connect the dots. Uh, a, uh, an amazing student did this uh, diagram that kind of linked uh, named Dora Guo, linking together the different eugenics figures and the institutions they started. Um, we started presenting the work uh, that fall. Um, I just then decided to build a seminar around it, and students in that seminar then conducted their own research. They did hosted a tour of students from Nagatuck High School, a kind of anti-eugenics tour of the campus, built a website, and started doing lots of their own independent research. And so now we have collaborations with colleagues in psychiatry, at the Peabody Museum, helping to contextualize um, eugenics objects that are in their collections. Um, and so it's really here, like just the beginning of trying to figure out together both kind of what happened and what its long impact is on the, you know, forms of education that are um, kind of dominant today. Well, and I love how organic I feel like the movement feels like starting from students and now we're having this conversation about it. And currently, you know, in present day, 
Has Yale been supportive of this process? You know, what has that been like? Yeah, I would, you know, like every university, there's kind of many Yales. Um, so there's colleagues in psychology, psychiatry, the history of science and medicine, our public humanities programs, who are all very, very eager to collaborate, learn more about this, um, kind of figure out how it's shaped the disciplines that they work in. Uh, early on in the project, the students kind of talked to um, students and, and, and professors at other institutions who had kind of done these reckonings. Um, so Stanford, University College, London, uh, UC Berkeley. And I think the message that we got was orient the work out towards the public, towards communities, towards teachers, that that's really the kind of work of repair and education and awareness raising that needs to be done rather than focusing it on a single statement from someone affiliated with the institution. And so the, the, the students, you know, insisted that's the way we had to proceed and that's the way we've gone. And with the many Yales you mentioned too, you know, with the many college towns they have, they're in towns and in cities. And and I think one of the major themes that you look at, particularly in the ways that this legacy continues to live on, is how the study of eugenics shaped the university's relationship to New Haven in our case here. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So this is uh, uh, several uh, really wonderful students did uh, kind of capstone projects on this, including a great researcher, Emmy Magliato. And um, what she discovered uh, in, in looking at the archives is that by the late 1920s, Yale administrative leaders were aware that the term eugenics was increasingly difficult to defend in public discourse. And it's all in their archives that by the late 1920s, after starting this American Eugenics Society, they say the word here is caution. We've got to proceed with caution. And so rather than, and they were being lobbied at the time actually to set up chairs, faculty chairs in eugenics with that explicit, explicit name. Um, but they're increasingly where you can't do that. In fact, they offer a, a position to a, an anthropologist from uh, the Museum of Natural History. And he says, uh, he, the, the position he's offered is as a faculty member in racial psychology. He says, don't call me that, it's too controversial. Just call me a professor of anthropology. It's, it's in the archives that students have found. So by the late 1920s, there are where you can't use the term um, as explicitly. And they set up other kinds of institutions, including something called the Institute of Human Relations. And if you go to the building that housed it at 333 Cedar Street, you can still see those words in the ironwork uh, there, although the Institute only lasted about 20 years. And they said, and um, you know, Emmy found this out, New Haven will be our laboratory. And they started initiating all these studies that really took the kind of architecture of eugenics, but didn't use the term, trying to figure out superiority, inferiority, uh, lots and lots of school-based surveys, et cetera. So Emmy argues that it really, really kind of set the terms for how universities, and including Yale, relate to the surrounding community. So we also spoke with Dr. Marco Ramos, who's a psychiatrist at Yale School of Medicine and an assistant professor in the Yale History of Science and Medicine program about this. Let's take a quick listen from him. I think the other afterlife of this is that today, researchers from psychology, psychiatry, and honestly, sociology throughout the university still use the community of New Haven as a laboratory. The community of New Haven 
furnishes so much data for the production of knowledge and advancement careers of Yale professors and of Yale trainees. And our pedagogy increasingly is is asking trainees to be to become critical of that relationship and say to what extent is my research advancing my interest versus the community that I'm supposed to be serving whose voices are getting represented in this kind of research is one really really important question one of the other angles that that often gets explored when when this comes up with community and this is particularly for the medical trainees they often go into the community thinking, oh, community members are going to welcome me with open arms because I'm here to help. And I, I joined medicine because I want to help. Right? I want to care for people. But when they actually enter the community with their Yale white coats, they're often met with suspicion, in some cases, outright hostility or resistance. And the, the classroom has come a place for us in, the, in this curriculum to unpack that and say, why is that the case, right? And the default answer for organized medicine for a long time was to say something like, oh, the community has a lack of health literacy. They have a lack of health education. This basically form of gaslighting, to be honest, where they're essentially arguing they don't know what's good for them. This history uncovers that they're suspicious of Yale University for legit reasons, <laughs> like grounded in Yale's marginalization of these communities. And so when you go into them as a researcher or as a clinician, right, you should expect to be met with that given the institution that you're representing and its history with the community. So Dr. Ramos really had a lot to say there, and there's so much, I think, to unpack. But Dan, can you touch on this process of of rethinking presumptions of good around these studies, as well as sort of the history of harm and the memory of that harm in New Haven. Yeah, I mean, we often want to tell ourselves the stories about all of our fields, that it's just a, a, a continuous process of improvement, um, you know, scientific research and innovation over time. And, you know, part of what the our colleagues in psychiatry are pointing out is all fields, I mean, all of these fields, the, the psychiatry program at Yale is no different than many, many others. It's founded in the late 1920s. You know, the dean of the medical school at the time, Milton Winternitz, was a board member of the American Eugenic Society. The founding director of that program was recruited from Munich um, and worked closely with, you know, the leading race scientists in uh, Germany. Um, and had these deep, deep beliefs in what was called kind of hereditarian psychiatry, the idea that the differences you observe in people's cognition and um, mental health are explained by the body and by inheritance. And so while he didn't, um, you know, uh, Dr. Khan, the founding director, didn't directly, directly transpose all of those ideas, it was clearly part of a framework. Now, I, I'm, you know, for myself, and I think many of the residents less interested in kind of this as a, an indictment or a historical adjudication over good versus bad, but instead saying we have, we can't just tell us ourselves these simplistic stories about our fields. We actually have to think about the complexity, the possibility that our fields also are capable of harm. And I don't just mean to single out psychiatry or psychology 
um, those kind of mental health fields, it's all fields. And I think we can do better at training students, engaging colleagues with this history so that we not, not only uh, kind of don't repeat these um, uh, uh, frameworks and ideas, but actually we can strengthen like the, the, the reasons that we want people to get into medicine, to help people, to care for people. Uh, that's partly what's at stake here as well. Right. And I think with what you just said, too, it's it's a conversation that I feel like if you take the academic out of it, it's the same conversation in other industries. Like you say, it touches on so many different areas. And you mentioned this a little bit earlier, too. But can we talk about what does institutional apologies look like? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, because part of the what we saw when you go into the archives here is um, the, all the work that they needed to do to try to make eugenics appealing to others. So they sponsored sermon contests for local clergy. They sponsored fitter family contests where at local uh, state and county fairs where people enter livestock, the best chicken, the best pig, you would also enter your family, small, medium, and large. And eugenic field workers would measure your face and ask you questions about your health history and pedigree and award uh, a medal designed here <laughs> in New Haven to the uh, winners of this uh, fitter family. Uh, textbooks, lots and lots of speakers tours. So they put out into the world many of these ideas that legitimated hierarchy, they legitimated humiliation, um, they legitimated segregation. And so for, I think, many of us, what um, kind of reconciliation and repair looks like is to now both acknowledge that history, but also think about what is an anti-eugenic world? What's a world where everyone is entitled to dignity, where we imagine that people can, there's abundance around us, and that it, it, it can shape the way we do many, many fields? So that's all to say that I think that's the kind of um, repair versus the kind where we make an acknowledgement, but then kind of firmly, firmly situated in the past, something that happened long ago that we're simply saying we feel sorry about. And I think what we want to think about is how can we orient this towards repair in the world we live in today. That was Daniel Hosang, professor of ethnicity, race and migration and American studies at Yale University. That full episode is linked on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Coming up, we hear about how the story of Thanksgiving is being retold, centering indigenous voices where we live. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Pellico. This hour, we're listening back to some of our favorite conversations on where we live in 2023. Last month, we got to hear from Chris Newell, a Connecticut-based educator and a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. He recently wrote a book for children all about the real story of Thanksgiving. If You Live During the Plymouth Thanksgiving is written for grades two through five, but it can be helpful for readers of all ages. It was the first in Scholastic's revival of its 70s era If You Lived During series. Here he is with host Catherine Shen describing how the idea for this book came to be. Um, yeah, well, you know, growing up in my community, Madokniguk, uh, we were not taught the first Thanksgiving narrative. I mean, we celebrated the Thanksgiving holiday. It was a day off. It was a national holiday. Uh, all of our families would get together for, a, you know, a feast, um, you know, much resemblant of the American Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, but we were not taught the pilgrim narrative. Um, and, uh, it wasn't something I really ran into until I left the reservation and started going to high school off the reservation that I realized that America taught this narrative, um, as, you know, basically the, the beginning of America. Um, and that really, you know, you know, from my perspective, even at that age, um, it felt really off, right. You know, cause it, it, uh, I'm like, I mean, I know my ancestors have been living in what is, uh, the Dawnland for 12,000 plus years. Um, and you know, it's, it's like when you teach the pilgrim narrative, you start the time clock with the arrival of the, uh, uh, the Mayflower in 1620, as if nothing happened before. Um, and so for me, it, you know, it was a personal journey on, on my part, but also for Wampanoag people, I mean, you got to understand I'm Passamaquoddy, I'm not Wampanoag. So this is not my history. Uh, it's just history that I've been working with for a, quite a long time. Um, for Wampanoag people, they experienced something uh, even uh, more drastic in that the Pilgrim narrative, what it does is it tends to put them in the past tense. And so in 2023, it is not uncommon for a Wampanoag person to experience meeting a new person, a non-Native person, and for them to be surprised that the Wampanoag person is alive, that they're even here. Um, that's the level of uh, education that the average American often has as a result of these foundational myths. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a frustrating experience for Wampanoag people to go through, even in their own homelands, and have to experience that. And I truly wanted to make, uh, you know, a, create a book that was not um, to please Scholastic, but I was thinking of all of my Wampanoag friends and relatives who experienced that, I, and this is their history, and I wanted to be very careful with it. Um, but I also wanted to put them back into the present uh, and tell some real truths so that, um, you know, the, the silly questions that they sometimes get, uh, you know, that, you know, we think would be basic knowledge. Um, they wouldn't get any more because their children uh, would have this resource and would have those uh, questions already answered prior. So, you know, children reading this book tend to be a little bit more educated than their parents and their grandparents uh, because this has been taught in a certain way since the 19th century. And that's one of the things I was hoping to uh, help undo. 
And we appreciate you making that clarification, too, because it's important to recognize that there are so many different voices with this storytelling. And and speaking of education and the function that this book can play, we wanted to let Mohegan member and director of curriculum Sam Tondro shout out your book and tell us why she uses it in the classroom in her own words. So let's take a listen here. I've worked with a lot of school districts, and I recommend Chris Newell's book for many reasons. I have so many thoughts. Um, I'll share a few, Um, but I really like how he took the approach of sharing topics such as language, life ways of the Wampanoag people in the 1600s, because the perspectives of our native peoples in books in the classroom are missing. By learning from the Wampanoag people, we're learning from the group of people and from a group of people that are still thriving in communities today. Winona Nelson, the illustrator, did such an amazing job creating accurate portrayals of what Northeast Woodland area tribes would look like. Um, more specifically, the homes that we lived in, the garb that we wore, and the involvement of children. I really liked the involvement of children throughout the book, and it's very inspirational for our tribal communities. Um, I also like, too, how he brought into a younger age group the topics of alliances, challenges, and misconceptions into the classroom, because we can really teach our students in a deeper perspective um, at a younger age. Chris would love to hear your response to what Sam has to say here, and especially the collaboration you did with the book's illustrator, Winona Nelson. Yeah, I I love Sam's words. And, uh, you know, Sam, if you're listening, thank you for those. Um, And, uh, you know, first I'll I'll talk about Winona, um, the illustrator. She's Leech Lake Band Ojibwe. Um, And I agree uh, with with Sam's assertion that she did her homework when it comes to, I mean, as an Ojibwe person, she is not, she's a Great Lakes tribe. Um, She's not from this region either. And and she did her homework uh, as far as depicting um, what Native peoples, you know, at the time period uh, looked like, dressed like, um, to the point where even in another review by Dr. Debbie Reese, uh, she points out very wisely that all of the Native people have shoes on they all have moccasins on they all have shoes on their feet are covered where typically in children's picture books native peoples are depicted without shoes and that's one of uh debbie reese's um you know biggest uh qualms about uh depictions about native people so i appreciate that you know she sees you know what i was going for um uh and what winona was going for in that we were trying to create a, a resource that you know would work not just for children but also for teachers um, you know, especially, you know, as I had teachers in mind as an audience and um, that, uh, you know, the story delves a little bit deeper, uh, right? It, it expands the lens beyond uh, the feast itself uh, to what happened before and what happened after. And that is a valuable tool for a lot of people. Well, and it's clear that there was so much research behind your work here with the book. And can you talk about also the process that you worked alongside a representative of the Wampanoag tribe to make sure that this is all accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually began with this material when I worked at the Pequot Museum. Um, I was the head of education there. And, uh, you know, there's a a common, you know, misconception sometimes uh, that the modern day Thanksgiving holiday uh, has to do with the Pequot massacre. And that comes from an actual piece of history where 
um, after the Pequot massacre in 1637, uh, the governor of the Mass Bay Colony, John Winthrop, would declare what was called an English Day of Thanksgiving, um, which was a day of prayer and fasting in celebration of the massacre of the Pequots. And so when I started working with this material, it was really because at the Pequot Museum, we had a lot of people confused, you know, between the, the Mayflower Landing and the Pequot Massacre and the Thanksgiving holiday. So I created um, a, a educational program for students called Demystifying Thanksgiving. Um, and in the research for that, that's where I learned about Sarah Josepha Hale uh, and the creation of the narrative, uh, you know, by fiction writers, essentially uh, in the 1800s and Alexander Young's footnote that uh, first identified uh, the feast as the quote unquote first Thanksgiving. That's the first time it was ever done. It was in 1841. Um, so this was years of research that I had done, and I pre presented this material for a few years at the, the Pequot Museum. Um, but even then, uh, you know, when it came time to writing the book, um, I wanted to make sure to source from tribal sources. And so Linda Coombs, uh, who you mentioned as, as my subject matter expert, uh, is uh, an, uh, a Quina Wampanoag elder and uh, an expert and she has a new book uh called colonization and the wampanoag story that's out uh right now by the way i'm just plugging that for her i encourage you all to get it uh because she is you know exactly what i wanted in that she's a hard grader so in every uh edit um, you know, she had very uh, specifics that she wanted to include in there, um, you know, to make sure that we were indigenizing the story. And some of the sources I chose were things like the speech from Frank Wonsetta James, uh, who in 1970 uh, was invited to the 350th anniversary of the Mayflower Landing, uh, a Wampanoag person, uh, a historian. Um, and he had written a speech that included a whole lot of truth uh, that was not being talked about at the time uh, and uh, was actually um, censored. He was not allowed to give his speech in Plymouth uh, because it disrupted the Pilgrim narrative so badly. So I sourced a lot of things from uh, Wampanoag sources, um, Linda Coombs being one, uh, but also Frank Wonsada James' uh, um, speech, uh, his censored speech from 1970. So I want to get back to the book in a little bit, but you mentioned the program Dismystifying, a Demystifying Thanksgiving, which allowed you to encounter a, a very wide range of student and teacher responses to this content. So you just mentioned a few of them, but we'd we'll love to sort of dig a little deeper about, you know, what were some of the most common questions or misperceptions that you were able to identify through that experience? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was a great testing ground for for this material. Be yeah, I mean, I'm not a uh, before this uh, project, I had not authored any books, um, you know, or, or any, you know, worked in uh, children's books or anything like that. Um, you know, so working with this material for years with Demystifying Thanksgiving, I got to see, um, you know, the students' uh, reaction to the material as well as their teachers. Um, and both of those things really informed, you know, the, the method I took to writing and, and the audience that I was writing to. Um, because what I was seeing was the teachers were just as ignorant of this history as the students were and were asking a lot of the same questions. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, a lot of times when I brought up the the um, uh, the subject of Sarah Josepha Hale, 
um, you know, we would end up in a discussion of her. And, uh, you know, she's, you know, uh, not a perfect person, but she's definitely somebody that America should know a little bit more about because she's the first woman to um, uh, be the editor of a large publication, um, Godie's Ladies Book. And she also wrote a little ditty uh, that was known uh, at the time as Mary Had a Lamb, uh, which we all know today as Mary Had a Little Lamb. Um, you know, so it brings even histories like that, that, uh, you know, are, are non-Native histories even uh, to light that have been hidden over all this time. And I found interest uh, from the students and from the teachers on both sides of it, you know, and, and really the reaction was a, a bit of surprise uh, that uh, how much they didn't know, um, you know, uh, up to that point and leaving the experience of uh, demystifying Thanksgiving, um, they were often excited about how much they learned. And so I definitely want to ask you in a little bit about teacher and student responses to the book, but I want to talk about first, too, that this was the first in Scholastics revisiting their If You Lived during series. And so this sort of served as an update of one of those books originally published in the 70s. So can you tell us about that process and and also give us an idea of the title, because it was really important for you to do away with the word first Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. I uh, say, quote, unquote, first Thanksgiving for a lot of reasons, and that I go over it in the book very well. Um, you know, when it came to um, uh, uh, choosing the title, um, that was one of the things I wanted to change. And when it came to this book, um, you know, being the first one in involved in the rewrite of the series, which came out in the 70s, and initially all of the books were written by one author. Uh, and this time around, Scholastic is looking to have all of these books written by a diverse set of authors. And so that was one of the differences uh, between this. Now, the original book, If You Live During the First Thanksgiving, um, you know, actually, I had never seen a copy of it. And uh, the editor, uh, Katie Height, who I from Scholastic that I work with very well, uh, you know, and I love, um, you know, the way her voice, you know, advocated for my voice to, you know, make sure to come through clearly in the book. Um, she would not even send me uh, a, a PDF copy of the original book because she was actually a bit ashamed about how it was written, how one-sided it was, and didn't want a copy uh, or, you know, anything that would resemble something like that. Uh, you know, she wanted something that was much more balanced, um, in, you know, from the get-go. And so she didn't even send me um, an initial copy. She did send me some from If You Lived During the American Revolution, which she felt a little bit more comfortable about. Um, you know, so at least I got an idea of how the book goes, because this series, the way it's written, it's not chapters necessarily. They're all questions. Every chapter is a question. Um, so there's uh, um, uh, 31 questions in the book. Um, and a student can basically go to the table of contents if they want to look up specific information, look for a certain question, and then go to that page and find the information that they want, a few paragraphs about it, much like the introduction. Um, changing the name, you know, uh, to the Plymouth Thanksgiving and then choosing the spelling. Uh, I'm going to go into that a little bit, too. Um, I wanted to get rid of that notion that uh, the feast in 1621 uh, was the first Thanksgiving, because once again, that was not a, a, a title given to that particular feast until 1841 when Alexander Young uh, found uh, a Plymouth plantation and Mort's relation and wrote about it. Uh, and in a, in a footnote, 
um, called uh, in, uh, in, in citing a letter from Edward Winslow that had about a paragraph about it. And that's how unremarkable the feast was to the English, by the way. They only wrote about a paragraph about it. Um, he would call it the, the first Thanksgiving because in the 1800s, they were celebrating um, harvest feasts that they were calling Thanksgivings at the time. Um, so he equated the two, and from then on, it became known as the first Thanksgiving. Um, but that is a mistake of history, as I call out in the book. Um, and that's something that I didn't want future um, students, you know, to uh, realize as they get into college. Because that's a lot of times they, they go through this material in elementary school, even in high school, calling it the first Thanksgiving. And then they'll run into a historian in college um, who would teach them something different. And oftentimes it's it's a very jarring experience for them. And I didn't want young students to experience that anymore. And so that was one of my biggest motivations for changing the title and getting rid of first Thanksgiving. That was Chris Newell, a Connecticut-based educator and a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. Coming up, we'll hear a snippet of our show with a new Connecticut state historian, Andy Horowitz. Stay with us. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katie Pellico. In this final segment, we hear from the new Connecticut State historian, Andy Horowitz. Here he is telling our host, Catherine Shen, about his earliest inklings of interest in Connecticut history. Well, my mom recently unearthed from a box in the attic a book that I published when I was in third grade. By book, I should be clear, I mean, it's, you know, some pieces of paper folded together. I think I had just gone on a school field trip to Sturbridge Village, and the book was called The Olden Times. So clearly, there was something in me that was always drawn to history. I, I don't even remember writing that, but I'm putting it on my CV shortly. You should. Um, yeah, definitely. But I think, you know, in terms of a kind of pro- professional trajectory, it was, it was really kind of three things that came together for me right around when I was in college. One, at, one was... Um, I had, this, I had this great summer job, starting in high school, actually, for the Department of Weights and Measures. And I realize this sounds like, what does this have to do with history? But, but stay with me here. Um, I had a weight kit of standardized weights, and it was my job every summer to check every scale in the city of New Haven where I was growing up uh, to make sure that when you put your, like, quarter pound of cheese on the scale, that it actually weighed a quarter pound instead of a third of a pound. Consumer protection. Um, what this meant was that Every summer for three years, I went down every street in the city of New Haven and went into every small grocery store, every deli, saw all the different kinds of foods that were for sale, all the different you know, languages people were speaking, all the different accents people had. And it just made me think of New Haven as a place where the whole world was. It just made it endlessly fascinating to me. And then I stayed in New Haven for college. And all of a sudden, all my classmates were from all over the country and even all over the world. And... I became a kind of tour guide, you know, like the, suddenly the most interesting thing about me was that I was a townie, as they say. Right. Um, so I got to show off these places that I was learning about in my summer job. And then it was really junior year of college. I think everybody who has any kind of happy story about their life, there's a teacher in the middle of it who kind of reoriented their trajectory. And for me, it was uh, my, my history professor, Glenda Gilmore who helped me get an internship at this place called the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina. And oral history basically just means interviewing people about their life experiences. And I got set up as a 20-year-old to interview this white civil rights activist who was in his 60s then named Al McShirley. Uh, Al had been uh, a radical uh, in, in the 50s and 60s, and he was arrested, I think, twice for sedition for plotting to overthrow the Commonwealth of Kentucky. 
which he assured me later he was not trying to do. Overthrow capitalism maybe, as he said to me, but not necessarily Kentucky. Uh, he had been surveilled by the FBI. It just gives you a sense of how radical he seemed in his time and place. And he was donating his FBI file to the university and wanted to tell his side of the story. So it was my job to sit in his living room for many, many hours and record his accounts of Stokely Carmichael and Marion Barry and these other giants of the civil rights movement. He had led a group of radical miners um, to the Poor People's Campaign in 1968 in Washington, D.C. And I just couldn't believe that I could sit in this man's living room and ask him questions about these, what to me were world historical events. So then when I came back to New Haven from that experience, knowing what oral history was, being so interested in learning about New Haven and telling stories about it, I went back to Professor Gilmore's office and she said, you should start an oral history project here in New Haven. And she and I did that together um, right after I graduated from college. And that's what really set me on this path. Well, I just want to say I didn't realize that summer job existed. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I had a badge even, which was really quite a um, – I mean, you shouldn't have given me a badge. I'll just leave it at that. I was going to say I, – I, The we're, power. We're, mm -hmm. we're five minutes into this conversation. I'm already learning so much. <laughs> but I love your description about sort of your first – getting your feet wet into becoming a historian because it's very much like being a journalist really you know I've always thought it's my privilege for people to invite me into their homes or even to just take a moment and, and speak with me about their experience you know whatever whatever the experience may be and I love that you mentioned the oral history aspect because that plays a huge role in in your sort of um, inspiration and you continue to do so. So can you talk about oral history a bit? Because I think ironically, we don't hear about it very much. Although I would I would say that that's kind of the beginning of a lot of history, how history is being recorded, right? Yeah, that's right. So oral history, like I said, is really just about um, interviewing people about their life experiences, their firsthand account. And so, you know, when I started the New Haven Oral History Project, um, the idea was simply to – I worked with Yale students to record interviews about just the living history of the city, stuff that people could remember. So we did interviews on everything from the Black Panther Party to the perfection of the pizza and sort of everything in between. Um, and the, what's really special about oral history is that it lets you bring new people and topics and themes into the historical record. Historians often you know, have relied on the kind of archival documents that only the rich and powerful leave behind. And oral history just totally unlocks that and allows us to think about the extraordinary significance of ordinary people. Um, you know, you don't really have to be famous for your life to be history. So mm -hmm. I'll, I'll give you an example of one of the interviews we did. If there are any uh, New Haven old timers listening, they might remember Sidney Bruskin, who had a bicycle store on Chapel Street in New Haven. And one of my students was interviewing him about going to Hill House High School during the Depression. And Sid Bruskin was a uh, – he was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. He grew up in a neighborhood called Oak Street, um, which was a pretty tight – you know, his couple of blocks, really tight-knit neighborhood of people, families like his, uh, Jewish immigrants. So he told a story about being in the lunchroom at now the citywide high school and seeing other Jewish boys eat ham sandwiches. And, you know, Jews for kosher laws, they can't eat pork, they can't eat shellfish. So he just couldn't believe they were doing this. And he said he was sort of moved to try a bite of the sandwich. And at the end of that day, he said in the interview that he was afraid to go outside because he thought he was going to get struck by lightning. And, you know, when you think about the sort of stories that the newspaper might report, um, there's not going to be a New Haven Register headline that says, you know, boy eats ham sandwich, does not get struck by lightning. Like this is not, this is not a newsworthy story. But it certainly changed his life. Um, 
And as historians, it gives us uh, insight into these very, you know, fundamental themes in American history about assimilation or acculturation, uh, about how someone came into a new kind of consciousness of themselves in the crucible of the public school in the 1930s and the Great Depression. Um, so it's a, an extraordinarily uh, historically significant moment that we would really have uh, no record of if my student had not sat there and just asked Sid Bruskin what it was like to go to school. Um, so in a million ways like that, the Oral History Project, well, I shouldn't say a million, in 250 ways. We did around 250 interviews uh, like that that are all archived at Sterling Library at Yale and open to the public. Um, and we use them to build that archive but also to do uh, public programs and museum exhibits. We did big exhibits on urban renewal in New Haven. We did one on the New Haven Holocaust Memorial. And it was all about just trying to um, open up the 20th century history of the city. Well, and, and as you're as you're sharing those anecdotes, I wonder if there is something to be said about hearing the voices, because that's certainly an appreciation that I started to have becoming a radio reporter. And now I'm sitting here having this conversation with you live on the radio is you can't really capture the literal voice through writing because I started as a newspaper reporter and as I have been one for a very long time. And with and that's the appreciation that I got is is hearing their cadence, hearing their emotions. So does oral history, does it capture something that textbooks don't? You know, why is it important to, to sort of continue having oral history? Yeah, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There's something to be said for hearing someone's voice. And in part, it's just more information. It gives you a sense of emotion and feeling. And, you know, I think there's sometimes a sense that history is just what the rich and powerful do. It's an account of kings and presidents and kind of policy decisions. I think we've moved away from that over the past decades, but it still lingers as the kind of disciplinary baggage of, of, of history, the study of history. Um, and getting to hear people who are more or less like you and me talk in voices that are more or less yours and mine with emotions that we can relate to, even as they may be you know, historical situations that are very distant from our own, I think they just make uh, remind us that that history is real, right? And we want to get into more of what you study later. But I want to ask first: when we think about state history, uh, when we think about history in general, I think we tend to think hundreds of years, thousands of years. But you're looking at more modern history, which is still history. So why do you think? Deep history is considered more valid by some. Yeah, there is kind of a funny bias where people feel like the more, um, like the older something is, the more historic it is. Right. Um, if there's no dirt on it, it's not history. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, like I, I, I tell my students, uh, I told my students at, at UConn on the first day of class that we have to come to think of history not just as the study of the past. It is that. It is the study of the past. But it's also the study of how things come to pass. It's the study of what happened, but it's also the study of why things happened and what other things might have happened. So, you know, history, I guess what I'm trying to say is that to me, history is the study of change over time. And it doesn't matter what event you put under that analytical lens. It can be something that happened a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or, or a week ago. But historians are interested in studying things in time. So geographers are going to try to place their events on a map. And historians are going to try to place their events on a calendar. Um, and I think that thinking about causation, you know, why one thing causes another, um, that is so important, a skill to be able to cultivate sort of no matter what year you're looking at. 
That was Andy Horowitz, the recently appointed Connecticut State Historian. That segment was produced by Tess Terrible. To see our entire Best of 2023 collection and listen back to the full conversations, you can visit ctpublic.org slash where we live. Where We Live is hosted by Katherine Shen and produced by me, Katie Pellico, and Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening.